Welcome to Better Than Nothing. What you are about to hear is just me being able to speak with some amazing people that come from many walks of life. This episode of Better Than Nothing is brought to you by Concept by Iowa Hearing. We are committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. Hello, this is Ken Root. The Mississippi River is a going dry, uh, according to a uh, country song, but it's not the first time that we've been this low on the river. In fact, it's occurred a few times in recent years. The strange thing is that we've had extreme flooding at times in those same years. So for the Mississippi River, there is an upper river and a lower river, And in the upper river, we have locks. In fact, I live very near one of them up in northeast Iowa, and they go all the way down to St. Louis. But past St. Louis, the river runs free as the Missouri and the Mississippi combine, and that's where it appears we have most of the current problem, not that we're not bone dry in the rest of the area. Joining me is Mike Steenhoek, who is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, I've talked to you before about this, and we have been through it a bit, but it's concerning to me and farmers right now because we are getting ready to harvest, and I would think, Mike, that uh, the amount of transportation of soybeans and other crops on the rivers picks up here in the fall season. It does, and you know, this is the time where we want our supply chain to be operating at, at full throttle. And unfortunately, we're entering this really critical time of the year uh, from a not from a position of strength, but a, a position of of weakness. Um, yeah, this is the the time where not only are we harvesting the crop, but it also coincides with our our key export window. Um, September to February, this six month period of time accounts for eighty percent of U.S. soybean exports. So it's by far our number, our, our key window. And, you know, we have this dynamic within the soybean industry where because the, the, the main participants, the United States, Brazil, and Argentina, um, they have, the U.S. has a, an inverse planting and growing season that our friends in South America have because they are south of the equator. So there's this very distinct period of time where the U.S. soybean export spigot is turned on while the South American spigot gets turned off. And then when their harvest comes online, their spigot gets turned on and our spigot gets turned off. So having our, and this is the time when our, our spigot gets turned on and we're the main supplier for the world marketplace. You know, Brazil's obviously producing more and more, so that's starting to mitigate that real sharp distinction, but, it, but it's still, it's kind of the, the rule of thumb that, that, that governs. So then you have to have your all of your various supply chain options and your modes of transportation well positioned to handle what farmers are going to be in the process of harvesting. And unfortunately, when you when you look at this, the Mississippi River and the low water conditions, uh, it's obviously not positioned very well to 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 accommodate all that. So it 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 currently is 
resulting in some barge uh, restrictions. Um, and unfortunately, we, we anticipate that will only, only grow and become more severe as we enter further and further into harvest season. Well, Mike, it shows that uh, we try our best to control everything we can, but uh, we cannot control the weather. At the same time, I really should note this, the extremely hot weather we've been having this summer, and especially a couple of weeks ago in the uh, midst of the Corn Belt, is really showing up right now. And it is of interest to me on this big river how that it ran full last spring while there was a drought on both sides of it. And now it's, uh, it's come down very, very low this fall. Everything's succumbing to the drought as far as the northern uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin area. How low is the water right now? If you were to do the gauges, and I know this is a part of your research, where are we setting versus what the minimum shipping levels are? Yeah, so you have these, um, you know, you, you have these various gauges, river gauges all throughout the system, and they're kind of just arbitrary levels that were established years ago. And so what we do routinely is we, we measure um, where the water level is in relation to that gauge. So when you look at, you know, Memphis, Tennessee, that when you're at a, you know, a negative three feet, um, which is actually lower than it was this time last year, um, that doesn't mean there's obviously negative three feet of water. It just means where you are in relation to the gauge. Now, you know, in a place like Memphis, you need to have that the minimum water um, requirements is a ne- about a negative 12 feet. Um, and we were really close to that last year. October 22nd, we hit a negative 10.89 feet. Um, so we were getting really close to those minimum that minimum water level. Now, what happened, you know, already um, is we were having to take mitigation measures with barge transportation where, you know, you you had to load barges lighter or you couldn't uh, due to a a channel depth concern or due to a channel width concern, you couldn't attach as many barges together to form one single unit. And both of those things, when you're – when you have to mitigate loads due to channel depth or mitigate the number of barges due to channel width, that all of a sudden changes the dynamic of, of the economics of, of barge transportation. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very efficient way of moving heavy product like agricultural products long distances in an economical manner. But when you start you know, mitigating those those that those efficiencies then all of a sudden um it's not as powerful of a of a conduit for us as as it normally is and it you know it really is one of the secrets to our success in the global marketplace is just this ability for farmers in the middle of the united states located hundreds if not you know a thousand miles or greater from our coastal regions to be able to 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 participate in the export market but you've got to have that system that's operating on all cylinders, and clearly it's not doing that right now. Well, the uh, area of the Mississippi River, I guess from really end to end, uh, has railroads that run along beside it or at least head the same direction. And, of course, we have trucking in this country that can haul what we consider big loads. But if you take the barge transportation's competition away from this, 
Uh, I would take it, Mike, that on these bulk commodities and the quantities we're talking about, the other forms of transportation make our export product more expensive. It does. You know, you you know, you you look at you know what makes the U.S. so competitive on the global marketplace. It's new, it's not due to a lower cost of production. Our our competitors in Brazil are usually able to produce a bushel of soybeans at a lower price point due to lower labor costs or due to lower land costs for a variety of reasons. But it, what, where we make up for that disparity is having a more efficient supply chain, and barge is a really important part of that. Rail is another part of it. We, we do a better job in the United States. You know, Even though Brazil has made significant advances in this area um, over the last you know, 10, 15 years, uh, we still do a better job of moving these bulk commodities long distances using these more efficient modes of transportation like barge, like rail, compared to trucking, where you know still a lot of soybeans um, you know have to rely on trucks to get to port regions in Brazil. So when you start, you know, all of a sudden these modes that we use in the United States, like barge, uh, become less efficient. It, it certainly starts curtailing that 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 competitive advantage that we have long enjoyed so it, it really much is a is a big deal and you know we always like to it's, it's always important to remind ourselves that we are involved in a commodity industry um you know what it what's produced can be produced elsewhere it's not that we have this really you know significant product differentiation between soybeans grown in the united states and soybeans grown in brazil there is some high degree of interchangeability between one versus the other. So what that, that tells you is to win on the international marketplace, it, it involves things like being able to get it to our customers in a, lower, in a lower cost manner or a more reliable manner. So that all kind of rides on how effective our supply chain is. So this is, this is very much a, a really big deal. It's easy to think about international competitiveness being just the province of supply, growing what growing a sufficient crop or demand, it's also about having that connectivity about between supply and demand. And that's what our transportation system does. I'm talking to Mike Steenhawk, who is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He's based in Ankeny, uh, alongside the Iowa Soybean Association. And the Midwest, of course, is where the largest concentration of crops are grown. Uh, meaning the crops that we export, such as corn and soybeans. And I was at a a presentation years ago in Brazil uh, put on by a professor from Iowa State. And I think it was 2001, Mike, and it kind of hit home to me. That was my second trip in there. I'd been there in 83, back when they just first started growing soybeans. And by 2001, the Brazilians were a worldwide force in growing soybeans. But he brought up that the biggest issue of price had to be the amount of infrastructure that you had in place. And so he referenced uh, Mato Grosso and Brazil and uh, uh, specific locations there. And then he referenced Jefferson, Iowa. And he said, look at it this way. Jefferson, Iowa can be considered one of the most landlocked places in the world. But the transportation capabilities, uh, directly by rail, directly by truck, and then, 
in two steps uh, over to the rivers and then transported, make it to where you have, uh, I think at the time it was about um, a one-third less cost of transportation than it would be of shipping from, I think at the time they were talking to Amsterdam or Rotterdam ports of what the cost would be. And Brazil versus the U.S. Uh, came in um, about uh, a third higher in their total cost because of the difference that we could make in transportation. But in doing so, Mike, uh, we're talking about the waterway. Um, we built the dams up and up the Mississippi and on other rivers as well to be able to get these bulk products down. But at this point, we have always been able to take them south of St. Louis down the Mississippi, uh, which is the confluence of literally all these waterways across the Midwest. And uh, they had to be on their own at that point, and we had enough water most of the time to float them. Is there any possibility of building any more dams down the Mississippi, or is there the capability of deepening that channel more to make it to where that we can transport at a larger depth year-round? Yeah, I, I think building additional locks and dams is it, it will be a considerable lift. And and I don't know at what point people would really start thinking along those lines. But you know the the concern that I have is it, it requires uh, a real confluence of a lot of things and a lot and years and years of advocacy to prevail upon Congress and the administration to provide funding to just enhance one lock that already exists. And we're right. seeing one happen right now uh, north of about 45 miles north of St. Louis at Lock and M25. Um, and, you know, the fact that we're, we're, we celebrate the fact that we have finally a new construction activity happening on the Mississippi River. And now all of a sudden it would be, you know, involving building brand new ones and that would that and to build this one additional lock chamber at lock and m25 is you know the original outlay for that is 732 million dollars and that's just for an expanded lock that that that's not an, that's not for the dam itself that's just for an expanded lock chamber and and so the 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 cost to build a series of new dams and a lock uh, it's going to be very imposing. So, um, so then the, the question is, which I do think uh, there needs to be a lot more energy devoted to, is what can be done from the dredging perspective, um, you know, as far as like advanced dredging, getting ahead of the game um, to make sure that when you have these low conditions that um, it's not as detrimental as it, as it would have been otherwise. And, you know, I think um, it, it's, again, it's not a, it's not a, a, a complete remedy uh, to when you've got these persistent drought conditions that we've witnessed and experienced these last couple of years. But I do think there is some, definitely some room for improvement in that area and not just be so reactive all the time. I, I think, you know, I, I always talk about the best time to respond to a challenge is before the challenge rather than after the challenge. Um, and I, I think yeah, that certainly applies to dredging, where we can get ahead of the game 
uh, again, you're going to experience inconvenience. You're going to experience costs. Um, you know, the, the dry conditions are just clearly too severe. But I think that I think we can be in the business of mitigating those impacts, uh, at least to an extent. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, is there a correlation between an untreated hearing loss and balance or a greater chance of falling in older people? You are very correct in that, Ken. Um, you know, individuals that have even a mild hearing loss, the risk of falling triples. And every 10 decibels that your hearing loss, wor- hearing loss worsens, it increases your risk by 140%. So a mild untreated loss triples your risk. Every 10 decibels, 140% greater for every 10 decibels. So by the time you get to a severe or um, you know profound, you're talking your chances of falling are extremely high. And how that comes into play, you know, we talked about dementia before and, you know, that it pulls from cognitive, but the other area that your brain pulls resources from to focus on untreated hearing loss is balance and gait. So the ability, you know, you think about, you know, when you get up from a, from a chair, you don't think about getting up. Your brain says, well, I need to get up. And you just, you get up and go. Individuals that now have the, the, you know, risk of falling, they have to brace themselves. They have to, you know, use support. They actually have to think about getting up from things or, or making that move of, well, I'm going to go from here to here, or, you know, they're out on a walk and having that spatial awareness of who's around them or what's around them. They lose that, that ability to hear that. So they lose that ability. You know, one of the, the, um, big ones was um, Jack Campbell's grandfather down um, at the bowl game. He was going to step out on the street and he didn't hear his family tell him to not cross the street. And, you know, falls are the leading cause of accidental death in adults over the age of 65. So we're not talking individuals, you know, 80 and 90 years old, which, you know, they do fall in this category because typically they have a hearing loss and, they're they're just a little they're balancing gates a little more off but we're talking the age of 65 and above is something that you know a lot of individuals need to you know understand and you know understand how it all plays into to every you know everyday life thank you taylor schedule your free hearing screening at concept by iowa hearing you can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. I'm talking to Mike Steenhawk, who is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. He's based in Ankeny alongside the Iowa Soybean Association. Is there any way to uh, realign uh, water flow that uh, could put more water in the Mississippi River at the times of need like this? pretty much through the dam building era, I think, partly for costs and partly because people don't want them on their land. But is there any way that you can up that flow that isn't cost prohibitive? Yeah, you know, that there is kind of a, a debate that, that, that occurs. You know, this more relates to the series of reservoirs that, that um, are located along the Missouri River in the northern parts of it and whether... Um, there can be more outflow permitted to, again, when the Missouri meets up with the Mississippi at St. Louis, will that then provide more support 
for navigation at a you know at a typically a drier time of the year. Um, one of the things that's kind of unfortunate in this country is that you know you've got these series of inland waterways, and then it's managed by the Corps of Engineers. And in some cases, they do a pretty good job, and in other cases, there's room for improvement. And one of the room for improvement areas is they, it can often be very siloed and and balkanized when they administer the river. They they look at you know one segment of the river like the Missouri in isolation without really considering, well, how I manage the Missouri River has a dramatic impact on what happens to the Mississippi River. But they are not, they're limited in their ability to really consider that. So they look at it with, with a very myopic kind of perspective. That certainly is, is, is problematic. Uh, you know, there's always kind of <clears throat> questions about, well, can we build more reservoirs and be able to be able to supplement water on the channels that way. Those are certainly big questions that obviously assumes that you're going to have the, the moisture to, to be able to do that. You know, kind of where we're at right now is that these are huge capital investments and you're not going to pull the trigger on them unless you've got a, a high degree of certainty that this is going to be the state of affairs in the future. The last thing you want to do is commit all these resources and then the next three years you operate in flood conditions. You know, in 2019, that's not that long ago, we had way more water than we needed. I mean, you had flooding throughout the whole system. Missouri River was, was really problematic. So, you know, the pendulum can swing uh, in a relatively short period of time. So that's, that's at least that's one of the challenges as well when considering some of these major investments. Well, I recall 2011, the uh, area in Montana got a tremendous amount of rain and snow in May. And it made the Missouri River run uh, extremely high all summer long uh, to the point that Gavin's Point, which I think is the last dam on the Missouri, uh, was running at almost full outflow just to be able to keep up. But earlier you were referring to the Missouri River being managed in isolation. I take it that you mean that those reservoirs that set up the Missouri River beautiful reservoirs, I might add, up into the Dakotas, uh, they are off limits to release that water just to put water in the lower Mississippi to float barges. Yeah, you know, there's a number, you know, when you, when you have your, your mandate, your portfolio, what you, the purposes for managing that system, there's, a, there's a, a number of boxes that they are supposed to check off. But one of the boxes that's not on that list is enhancing navigation on the Mississippi River. And so that's not one of the, so that that's really not taken into consideration. So, I mean, you can appeal uh, to uh, the, the Corps of Engineers and say, we wish you were, we wish that you would adjust how you manage these reservoirs because we need some support for navigation on the Mississippi River. The response would be, well, that's not, we have, that's not part of our mandate. We have not been given that, um, and so that so that doesn't really enter into it. So they really manage that for a, a variety of other criteria. Is there any uh, other way that uh, is being considered? I mean, can the rail transportation increase, truck interstates, anything of that nature that uh, gives us an alternative uh, or an expansion? of our capacity to haul bulk commodities 
down to the Mississippi uh, terminus for export. Yeah, I mean, the, the Mississippi River will always be just a uh, preeminent part of our supply chain. So there's, there's no way to just simply bypass that. Um, it, and may it always remain a preeminent part. But I, I, I think, you know, it's always a good time to consider how you can diversify your supply chain. The old cardinal rule in supply chain is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So it's always it's always advisable uh, whether you're operating in a con- in a condition of fluidity or a condition of scarcity. It's always good to try to consider that that question, and it, but it's particularly a good time to do it when you're when you have some of these challenges that we find ourselves in, like low water on the Mississippi River. So, without question, making investments in our in things like our our rail infrastructure. Um, which connects to other parts of the country, like the Pacific Northwest, which is our number two export region. Investments in those in that kind of export capacity that's very advisable. Um, which those are those are things that we've participated in. Things like the the Great Lakes and St. Lawrence Seaway. That's not that will never rival the Mississippi the Mississippi Gulf or the Pacific Northwest in terms of volumes handled. But any any way you can make that slice of the pie chart bigger would be beneficial to our industry. Um, things like the Atlantic coast, the, the Texas Gulf. And then, you know, of course, um, it, you know, always trying to find ways to do more domestic uh, consumption as well. And, you know, we're obviously seeing some of that with the, the biofuels as, as well, so that you're, again, you're, you're producing more and more marketing opportunities for farmers, um, which then, puts less stress on individual parts of the supply chain. When you're able to do that, you're better positioned for success. Mike Seenhawk is my guest. He is the executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. And not one time during this interview has he shown any desperation or even frustration. Uh, Mike, you always have an intellectual approach to things. I was just thinking that perhaps the best hope right now is praying for rain. You know, if you look at the amount of rainfall we've gotten through the years, it and you relink it to prayer, you could say that people pray too much at times and not enough at others. But I'm not sure you want to intellectually <laughs> analyze that. Uh, but can we just say that uh, that the seasonality we face is a reality every year, and it shows why every year is different when you're farming. You know, you set the stage in the spring, you, you shuffle the cards, and then you try to, to deal it out in a manner that works for a farmer to be able to produce and a farmer to be able to be profitable and the transportation industry to work. And yet, as hard as we try on this, Mike, I hope that people can realize from what we've been talking about that there's just no way to cover every base and to make sure that we can have what we want when we want it and then be able to sell it to the world in the same manner. And it's also just a reminder of how when you have drought conditions that have really calcified, it really takes some sustained, significant rainfall to really make that fever break. Um, you know, it's not, you're not just going to get one significant rainfall and then all of a sudden all is well. 
you know, it, it always just kind of astonishes me. You know, I see it over and over again, but every time it's still kind of as a reminder that, you know, you, you have what, what you consider to be a pretty significant amount of rainfall, and then the drought mo- monitor is released again on that Thursday, and it's, it's made a, just a marginal impact on that footprint. So it really does require a lot of that sustained amount of rainfall to eventually get the soil out of this dehydrated condition to be more saturated so that, you know, ideally what you want is that, and this is a very simplistic way of looking at it, but for every 10 drops of rain that fall, um, right now, nine of the, the way the, the ground is, nine of the 10 drops or all 10 of those drops will just be firmly absorbed into the soil. What you like is for every 10 drops of rain, maybe six or seven of them get into the, the soil and retain there, but then you still have three or four of them that are able are made available uh, to go into our streams and our rivers to, to make sure that navigation is, is, uh, is permissible. And, and so, but it, it's going to take a considerable amount of, of, of that moisture over a prolonged period of time to really get us into a more of a condition of normalcy. Oh, no doubt about that. And uh, you put it in a good manner. And uh, uh, following a drought, uh, I recall the one in 2012, uh, rainfall made no difference anywhere except uh, on the few weeds that were still growing there because it sucked up that water so fast into the soil to replace it. You know, the number one thing we have to have is a soil profile that can have enough water in it. You can grow the next crop. So that's what the soil does first, and then it lets go. And then if you get it too full, all 10 of those raindrops might go down the river, and that's where you get flooding. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. I always love talking to you about it. Probably we've talked the entire half hour about things we can do nothing about. Uh, but yet, on the other hand, we have the appreciation for where we are now and uh, what we've accomplished with infrastructure but yet how much we are dependent upon the uh, vagaries of Mother Nature. Uh, and this year is a classic one, uh, way too high in the spring, way too low in the fall, and unknown right now with the forecast if rain is going to come. Thanks a lot for talking to me, Mike. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening to Better Than Nothing. I hope you stayed awake for most of it and liked what you heard. If you'd like to tell me your thoughts or relate your memories... Send it to kenroot at gmail.com. We'll try to put out one of these every week, and you can sign up with your podcast service to be reminded when the next one's available. See you next week for another episode of Better Than Nothing.